Hear these words uh, from Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. And Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. And Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Iliad. Iliad fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Matan. Matan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words. These names all represent micro stories in the macro story of your redemptive narrative of grace and mercy. And so God, would you help us this morning to find our place in this story to be reminded that in the chaos and the tumult and the distress and the anxiety that we feel in the times in which we live, God, that your hand is shaping and guiding our stories, that our stories are caught up in your story and that we have been invited to find place, to find meaning, to find a sense of belonging, to find a blessing in the story of Jesus. That is our inheritance. That is what it means to be united with you by faith. And so, God, I pray that you would bring that home to our hearts and our souls this morning, to our bodies, that this narrative would become our narrative. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This might uh, seem like a strange place to be uh, on uh, the day after Christmas in this Advent season, which actually is the beginning uh, of the church calendar. So we come to the end of the Hallmark calendar, but actually the beginning of the church calendar. Advent is the beginning of the Christian calendar year, right? We don't mark our moments as Christians by the calendar of consumption, uh, but rather by that of the generosity of God towards us in Christ. And actually, this day begins Christmas time, which is 12 days of 
uh, feasting historically as we're reminded of uh, the generosity of God in Christ and what it means to live between these two times, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming. It's a season to stir up a longing for uh, God's presence and his power to be felt in our lives. And, and this morning, I, I wanted to just kind of pause and, and kind of bring us into a part of the Christmas story that we often just pass over this genealogy. Um, yeah, that, that list of names that most of us, if, if you're doing like a Bible reading plan and it starts in Matthew 1 uh, and January 1, this will be the one that you kind of breeze through or maybe the one you just get lost in because this seems to be just a list of names like some sort of a Jewish obituary uh, that, that many of us just find, if we're honest, boring, uh, irrelevant, and, and confusing, right? Just a bunch of names, most of which we don't know that seem like a distant memory and seem completely irrelevant and are just kind of like a setup to the real heart of the Christmas story, which is then kind of read in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2. But I, I want to actually slow down and just for a few minutes pay attention to these 17 verses. Uh, because I think here we have something that's so much deeper, so much more meaningful than we often give credit to. There's an invitation here to see really the gospel uh, in this genealogy, to see the good news of God's grace and his mercy to specific particular people in specific particular times over many generations. We see the story of the good news of Jesus. And, and really just to kind of think about what it would mean for us to find our place in this story and how that can really anchor us as we live in a time, again, with so much chaos, so much stress, um, so much anxiety, so much reactivity. Um, we, we feel, for many of us, we enter, the, we kind of come to the end of this year maybe feeling lost, feeling confused, feeling disoriented, feeling displaced, and just wondering, like, when are things, when, when is life going to feel like normal again? What, is, what does normal even mean anymore? And, and how do we find a sense of hopefulness that can anchor us in the midst of so much kind of anxiety swirling around us? And I think it's finding ourselves, anchoring ourselves, finding our place in this story that actually will give meaning and purpose and a sense of resilience to us in this time. Now, as modern Americans, it's hard for us, I think, uh, most of us, to understand the significance of genealogies. Most of us don't even know, at least I don't really know, who our great-grandparents are or our great-grandparents. If I ask you, like, who is your great-great-great-grandparents? You, some of you might know, but I'd say most of us probably don't know. We don't know where they're from. We don't know their stories. We don't know uh, why they came to America in the first place, uh, how their legacy shaped our parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents, and how that continues to really shape us even today in all kinds of hidden ways. Unlike in Europe or Africa or Asia or perhaps Latin America, we don't live in our ancestral, ancestral homelands uh, with roots that go back thousands of years. We can't say, and that's where many, many generations ago, this happened to my family and this happened to that person. Um, we have this kind of rootlessness, right, and restlessness about us in the West, in America, and a sense of disconnection, which probably explains why uh, there's been a resurgence of interest in Ancestry in the last several decades. I think the number two or three uh, most popular website now is Ancestry.com. And there seems to be this desire, especially uh, amongst, um, I think, like my parents' generation at least, uh, my mom has become obsessed. My parents aren't here this morning, but she has become obsessed. She has a master's in library science. 
And she has taken that like researcher's mind and become in like the last 10 years, just like a, a guru on our family ancestry. Just, I mean, literally like researching documents, getting into it. Um, and uh, over Christmas dinner the other night, we were like spending some time talking about our family ancestry, our family tree. And uh, my mom has actually been able to trace most of our family back uh, to uh, Northern Europe. And so she has traced our family back. Our family tree on, on my side kind of goes back to uh, four countries, England, Wales, Ireland, or maybe Scotland, uh, most likely Ireland, and Poland, where most of our family kind of hails from. And uh, we actually discovered uh, that my paternal grandmother, my dad's grandmother, uh, her line goes back to English royalty. So that was kind of fun to discover that. Um, so, but for most of us, like, this information, even when we find this out, it's interesting, but there's no meaningful connection to, like, our present lives. It's just kind of like a, an act of curiosity. Like, oh, that's interesting that I'm related to, uh, you know, some sort of, like, uh, you know, aristocrat from, the six, from 16th century London. Um, but it's not really life-transforming to us. But if you were a first century Jew, and you were listening to this letter from Matthew, Jesus' biographer, one of his four biographers, and you were listening to this being read publicly in a synagogue or out in the street, your ears would have perked up at the reading of this genealogy. It would have been, actually, a genealogy in those days would have been the most obvious place to start. For us, it's the boring part. For them, it's actually the most compelling, the most interesting, the most important place to start if you're attempting to establish the credibility of Jesus as Israel's Messiah, a particular people with a particular promise from a particular God, finding its fulfillment in this man, Jesus of Nazareth, right? And that is the point of the book of Matthew, right? To, to just give some context, Matthew's big idea in writing this is not just to give a genealogy, but to give a theological history of Jesus as the Messiah. Notice in verse 1, uh, this translation says, the CSB says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I actually think a better uh, translation, uh, the, the, in the Greek, it's biblos, which is the word for book, uh, and genesis, which is the word from which we get genesis. Another uh, translator interprets this as saying, the book of the new genesis wrought by Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the, the Christ, the anointed one, right? Like, so Matthew is drawing a Jewish person's attention to the fact that in Jesus, there is a recreation happening of the world. He's representing Matthew, uh, Genesis to us and saying, Jesus is the new Genesis. Jesus is the one bringing about the promises of what the Old Testament writers called the kingdom of God. The reign and the rule of God is coming, and it's coming through the royal descendant of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and of David, the king, right? Like, so he's establishing on one level the royal lineage of Jesus and saying Jesus goes back to David. And again, this is important, right? Like this is important for them because Jesus didn't come, it didn't seem he came from any significant family of origin. Jesus was born in a small rural town outside of the center of power to a teenage mother who was pregnant out of wedlock. So the question is like, how could this man be the promised Messiah? And so, uh, so, so Matthew wants to show them how that connection happens. So genealogies in those days were very significant. They were less like Ancestry.com 
and more like LinkedIn, right? Like this is your resume. When you wanna know what somebody's about, you wanna know what their pedigree is, you wanna know what they've accomplished, you go to LinkedIn, LinkedIn and you look them up and then you begin to look at their resume, you look at their experiences, you look at their education and then you begin to form judgments about the kind of person that they are. And that's how a genealogy function in those days. It was a resume that established your identity. It was it's like, who is this person? Well, they're this person, and they're begat by this person. They're, I mean, they literally had these memorized, they would rehearse these, and they became a way of greeting uh, other people, right? They established a sense of identity. They established meaning. They established a sense of place in the world and, and belonging. Actually, we, we used to live um, in South Florida for a couple years, and in traditional Hispanic cultures, this is actually still the way that people oftentimes will, will introduce themselves if you meet somebody for the first time you would greet them by asking the question, you wouldn't just say, who are you? Where do you come from? You would actually say, who are your parents? What family do you come from? And it's the same thing happening here. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, says it like this. For many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums, a fanfare of trumpets, and a town crier calling for attention. Any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling. Like a great procession coming down a city street, we watch the figures at the front and the ones in the middle, but all eyes are waiting for the one who comes in the position of greatest honor right at the end. And so all of this culminates in the end of the genealogy, Jesus being the one on whom all of this energy is focused. Jesus is the fulfillment. That's the whole point. This is the story of Israel in compact form from Abraham down to Jesus, down to Joseph, Jesus' biological father. What he's saying through all this genealogy is Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the climax of the story. All the hopes and dreams, all the promises for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years and generations, all the stories that have been passed down from father to son, from mother to daughter, from grandparent to grandchild, over the generations, all find their endpoint in Jesus. As a Jew um, writing to Jews about their Messiah, Matthew is obviously steeped in the Old Testament. If you read this book, there's probably more Old Testament allusions in Matthew than any of the other of the four gospel writers. And so there are multiple layers of things that are happening in this genealogy, right? So I, I don't have time to get into all that. I just want to draw your attention to one little thread, but I want you to know there's more here than what I'm going to share. There's, there's multiple layers in the book of Matthew that as you get underneath and you go deeper and deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole, Matthew, like just a brilliant, like the literary design of this is really brilliant. And I wish we had time to get into it. It's like... Um, we went and saw the new Spider-Man movie uh, this week as a family. Now, I'm not going to spoil it for you guys, because uh, I know that I have that power right now to crush all of your dreams. Uh, and I'm not going to do that, um, even though I have seen it. And it is, in my opinion, one of the best uh, Marvel movies I've ever seen. Um, but, but what you notice in this Spider-Man movie, it, it's the same as Star Wars, is that there's layers. So some of you are like, Marvel nerds. I, I, I'm low on the scale of like Marvel nerddom. I know very little, and I know some of you guys going to lower your opinion of me. I, I know very little about, I didn't read the comic books growing up, um, and I've gotten into it. But like in this Spider-Man movie, man, they dive deep into like the past and all the stories. And so uh, my kids, some of my kids hadn't seen, uh, and Emily hadn't seen some of the previous Spider-Mans. 
And uh, they kept leaning over going, what's going on? Who is this guy? And it's like at one level, it's just like Spider-Man triumphing. At another level, there's so many layers of like narrative plot lines and subplots that are being woven together and resolved in this Spider-Man. That's why it's such an amazing movie, uh, just because it draws together so much of the past and, and weaves it into this brilliant uh, narrative. And that's exactly the kind of thing that's happening here in Matthew. You could look at uh, the alteration of the names, right? There's editing that Matthew's doing here, which was a common thing to do uh, in this kind of uh, genealogical work, right? He changes some names, and you could talk about what that means. There's, there's the significance of uh, the, the three sets of 14 generations, and you could look at the fact that um, the 14th and the last set, for instance, the last uh, one, there's 13 fathers. Notice that in the story, and you could see how God himself becomes the 14th father, Emmanuel, God with us. He, he brings that story to a conclusion. Instead of listing Joseph, the adoptive father, he says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, because God is the father. God is the one who is securing these promises for his people. You could talk about Jesus as the jubilee, right? Like 42 is six sevens, and we know that sevens are significant in the Bible, and Jesus comes as the seventh seven, the time of jubilee, the release, the liberation, the economic and spiritual reset of an entire generation. Jesus is the one who comes. I mean, there's so much of that that you look at as you break this down. But this morning, I just, I just the, the whole point Matthew's making in, in, in these layers is that Jesus is the climax of that story, a story that, that ended... Actually, um, Matthew here is picking up on Chronicles. This genealogy comes, uh, is based on Chronicles. Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible was actually the end of the Hebrew Bible. It didn't end in Malachi, it ended in Chronicles. And at the end of Chronicles, you see people in exile, and then there's this prophecy about one who's going to come and rebuild the temple, one whom God would be with. And he's picking up on those threads of longing and desire. He's saying, this is the one, Jesus is the one who fulfills all of those hopes, all of those dreams, all of those desires. But the thread that I just want to mention for a few minutes is the thread of these particular five women that God includes in this genealogy. One of the things we know about patriarchal genealogies in a society like the Jewish society here is that you didn't include, when you were tracing the ancestral bloodlines back to kings and back to royalty, it was traced through the fathers, so it's interesting and maybe a bit strange, would have been a bit strange and possibly even offensive in this narrative that Matthew includes five women. What's even more bizarre is not just that he includes five women, he includes five non-Jewish women. And not just are they non-Jewish women, he highlights the wrong like women. Like if you were telling this story and you wanted to highlight, Matthew's kind of like Jesus' PR person. You, wouldn't, you would want to highlight maybe like the five ma- the, the matriarchs, the four big matriarchs, Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, and Leah. But instead, he highlights these non-Jewish outsiders, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Matthew here, rather than cleaning it up for us and presenting... Um, kind of a a, a scrubbed version of the story. Matthew, just like in every family, there's scandals, secrets, shame. Matthew edits and brings all of this together, and he puts right in front of them the deepest and darkest family secrets and scandals in the family tree of Jesus. 
And he does that on purpose because he wants to draw our attention to what's really going on in the family tree of Jesus. What we see in the family line of Jesus is both sin and suffering. We see those who are sinners and those who have been sinned against in the stories of these women. Right? If you know these stories, I mean, we don't have time to get into them, but I want to encourage you, if you want to find some encouragement, if you feel uh, just like you, you come from a family with so much brokenness and, and, and so much pain and so much tragedy and suffering, you, you feel the weight of your own sin this morning as you come into this place, man, I want to encourage you to go back and to read these stories. You can find them in, in, uh, in the Old Testament in places like Genesis and Judges and, uh, and the Kings. Tamar. Remember the story of Tamar. Tamar is a Canaanite. Tamar's first husband was a really wicked dude, and he dies. God essentially kills him. And rather than, as would have been custom, the father, Judah, who's one of the patriarchs, giving uh, the younger brother to Tamar, Judah, who's wicked here, doesn't do that. He doesn't provide for her, which left her exposed. Again, in a patriarchal society, in a a male-dominated society, she finds herself in a desperate place. And so she essentially prostitutes herself out, commits incest with her father-in-law, and then there's a baby that comes out of that scandal. This is the story of Tamar. Rahab is uh, a sex worker from Jericho. Ruth is a Moabite, right? And although we don't uh, read about any uh, particular moral failings or sin, we know that Ruth obviously is a sinner, but we don't read about that in the story. Um, she is descended from Lot. From, she, she's essentially the progeny of uh, incest herself, right? And, and again, this was the, the Lot's descendants, the Moabites, were hated by both Jews and Gentiles. You have the story of Bathsheba, right? A Jew, but who was married to a Hittite, to a non-Jew, she was essentially violated and exploited by David, right? Like the story here draws our attention to David's sin, actually, not to Bathsheba. David, the one who killed Uriah, her husband, right? So David murders, David commits adultery, David abuses his power, takes advantage of his power, puts her in a compromising position, exploits her, and then we know that a baby again, comes out of that. There's all kinds of dysfunction here. We see these women, um, we often tend to focus on their sin, but but we also see that these women have all, in their own ways, been sinned against. They they are sufferers as well. They are both sinners and sufferers. And we see in our own stories the same realities. We are both sinners and sufferers. We are sinners and we have been sinned against. One of the things that's interesting when we look back into our own families of origin and our histories is that we see all the complexity of what it means to be human. And all the anxiety arises. One of the things that we do when we look back into our histories is we tend to look for the triumphs. We tend to look for the good things, but we often minimize the darkness. We often miss and don't know what to do with the pain and the tragedy and the suffering. And, and our histories are tales of both, right? Triumph and tragedy, grace and evil, brokenness and blessing. My own family's lineage, as we go back into the annals of history, we see everything from, again, royalty to alcoholics and abuse and abandonment. And my grandmother still won't even talk about her parents because she was abandoned as a child. Her, didn't know her father, didn't know her biological father. Her uh, mother uh, abandoned her. 
and she was raised by Polish grandparents who immigrated to the United States, and there's all kinds of pain and tragedy and darkness in that that shaped both of my parents. Both of my parents come from families of alcoholism and abuse and addiction and left their homes as teenagers, and we're like, I never want to go back into that, and that's, that's shaped us. That's created kind of a legacy of both beauty and blessing and brokenness and pain that God is in the process of redeeming. We see this, these kinds of things happening in our own lives. And in our cultural moment, I think it's really hard because when we come up against this kind of heinous sin, this kind of darkness, when, it, when sin is exposed, when we're sinned against, our impulse is to want to move away from that sin. We want to disassociate ourselves, to withdraw from sinners and kind of protect ourselves and, and create kind of a pure, holy space over here. We want to kind of distance ourselves from those we see to be sinful and struggling. But one of the beautiful things about God, Emmanuel, is that God is with both sinners and those who are sinned against. We see a God who doesn't just disassociate himself from sin. I mean, that's the good news of Jesus, right? Jesus came to save sinners. This is not something new. This is something that God has been doing over multiple generations. God is with them. God engages them. He moves towards them in their sin and in their suffering. He transforms generational trauma, and out of it, he brings redemptive triumph. Out of the messiness comes the Messiah. Without these great-great-grandmothers and without all the attendant scandals, there would be no promised land. There would be no Davidic monarchy. There would be ultimately no Messiah. And I just want us to just, like, I, I, I'm basically done with the sermon. I just want us to, like, take note of this story that God is weaving, and, and I want us to receive just an invitation into the story for ourselves. There is a place for you. There is a place for me in this story of Jesus. These names represent stories, people who found themselves encountering the radical, scandalous, beautiful grace of God, the mercy of God, the judgment of God in certain places, but nonetheless, the grace of God. And there's a place for us in this story, in this family of Jesus. This story is our story. We are inheritors of both the family curses and the family blessings that are found in Jesus. And I believe that the more we anchor ourselves, we find our place in the story, the more resilient, the more hopeful, the more patient, the more non-reactive we will be in the face of what feels like overwhelming brokenness and sin all around us. This is our story. This is the place we belong. This is the place where God invites us to experience home, to experience identity, to find meaning and purpose in life. Paul Ternier, the Swiss psychiatrist, once said, man needs a place. He who has once had the experience of belonging in a place always finds a place for himself afterwards, whereas he who has been deprived of it searches everywhere in vain. When we find a place in the family and the story of God, we can move out into the world with confidence as sinners and as those who've been sinned against of experience the radical, beautiful, scandalous grace of God. The more we dig into that story, the more that story becomes our own. We anchor our sense of self. We anchor our vision of community. We anchor our life in the world and how we relate to other people in that story 
to the degree we do that, we will be able to move out into the world and, and not only experience, but extend that story of Jesus to other people. The less we do that, the more we're going to be out searching for a place, searching for a story. We'll search for that story in politics. We'll search for that story in all kinds of shameful behaviors. We'll, we'll search for that story in that place in addiction. We'll search for that story and that meaning in our work. We'll search for that story in having children and trying to create legacies and then being disappointed when those legacies don't come to fruition. And so I just, I, I hope that that's an encouragement to us today, just to, just to find our place there, to receive the invitation that God is with us, God is for us. I mean, I love how God comes to those who've been sinned against and he advocates for them. He calls uh, they're, they're, they're oppressors. He calls the ones who sinned against them to justice. To ju- he calls them into judgment. There's exile, right? There's a call to repentance in these stories. Like God doesn't minimize. He doesn't look over this sin. Um, gosh, I mean, when we look at this family tree, we shouldn't be surprised that we see sin in the world and sin in the church. It's probably much worse than we could ever imagine, much worse than even what we're seeing today in these stories. And so for those of us who feel disillusioned, who feel displaced, who feel maybe like we want to just deconstruct everything in this moment because we see all the sin around us being exposed, I hope that you can look at this story and find encouragement in God's relentless pursuit of justice, but his relentless pursuit of transforming sinners and redeeming them. If God didn't engage these sinners and God didn't offer forgiveness and offer the opportunity to repent, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't have Jesus. And out of this brokenness of this family line comes redemption. God works slowly oftentimes over many generations. So some of the things that we ache and long to experience, they're not gonna be experienced in our lifetime. But we, we're called to trust. We're called to continue to work for justice, to continue to patiently pursue grace and mercy and justice and forgiveness because some of the things that we long for we experience by our children's children and their children, not by us. And so we don't lose heart because we see that God is faithful to keep his promises over generations. And for those of us who maybe we, we find in this story, we see our own sin in this story. We see ourselves in some of these characters. We see our own adultery. We see our own shame. We see our own abuse. We see our own addiction. We see our own just misguided attachments. I hope that we find encouragement that God isn't afraid to draw near to us, that God comes to rescue, God comes to save, God invites us into this family to make this story our story, to say, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I, I have run from God. Yes, I've done all kinds of heinous things, but God is the kind of God, Emmanuel, who comes to be with us. We don't have to hide our sin. We can bring it into the light and we can find forgiveness. We can find a place in this story, and we can find Jesus as they did in the first century, being their Messiah, their hope, their light, truth, goodness, beauty of God made available to us regardless of our family background, regardless of the shame that we carry, the guilt that we carry. Jesus is with us. He is for us, and this is the place that we belong. So I just want to invite you into a time of just reflection as we close out here and we get ready to take uh, communion this morning. Um, just to reflect on God's invitation to you. God invites you into the story. God has a place for you in the story. And he wants to bless you in Jesus.
Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the longings, all of the stories, all of the symbolism, all the rituals, all the temple, all of that all comes together in Jesus. Jesus is what you long for. Jesus is the place that you've been seeking, right? The perfect family, the true family, the better family that you maybe haven't been able to find in your own biological family. Jesus is the one who invites you into this family of God with all of its beauty, with all of its blessing, and all of its brokenness and all of its trauma. Jesus is making all things new. And so maybe for us, this is just a reminder to us to not freak out, to not lose heart, to not get cynical. And maybe you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, but man, you feel so disoriented. You don't know where your place is in this world. You don't know, and you're just feeling a lot of anxiety, right? And you, that anxiety's got to go somewhere, and, and, and you need an outlet for that anxiety. I want to encourage you to bring it before God. Find your place again in his story. Be reminded that over many generations, God has kept his promises, and he will do that now. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to try to make something happen. You don't have to try to get back and strike back and take vengeance on the one who's hurt you. And I know there's so much pain in this room. And I know that we've experienced so much trauma over the last couple of years. But God is the one who heals. God is the one who liberates. God is the one who saves. And he's doing that all in Jesus. And so let's just bring our hearts before him. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. And, and you just want to bring these things before him. You want to trust him. You, you want to receive love. You want to receive his forgiveness. We can do that here as well. This is just a time for us just to respond to God's invitation to find our place in his story, right? We try to drag God into our stories, but God says, no, I want to bring you into my story. I'm not your executive assistant, right? Like, you're a part of my story. I want to invite you into what I'm doing in the world. Story of a God who came into this world, who lived the life that we couldn't live, who died the death that we should have had, who entered into the mess and the trauma and redeemed it who restores through his life and his death and his resurrection. So let's just take a moment to respond as God leads. I'm going to invite uh, Miles to come back here, and we'll uh, prepare for communion. Let's take a moment. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll respond, and then we'll send you back out with a benediction. Father, we thank you that we, in this story of Jesus, we see an echo of our own stories. We see in this over many generations of trauma and sin and suffering a God who's not afraid to enter into that mess. And out of that mess, bring the Messiah, bring redemption, bring salvation. So God, we thank you that you've done that in Jesus. And we pray that we would appropriate that to ourselves this morning, that we would receive this invitation to enter into your story, or just to be reminded that this is the story that gives meaning to our lives. If we are followers of Jesus, I pray that we would be reinterpreting our stories and our pain in light of this larger story, that we would see in all of these knots in the family tree of Jesus a reminder that you are committed to working out your purposes both in judgment and in discipline and in rebuke and repentance and in grace and mercy and love. God, you are working out your purposes in Jesus, and you invite us to experience that this morning again in a fresh way. And so, God, I pray that we would do that by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.